You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. All right. All right. Uh, I'm super excited by this. Uh, so, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to tonight's program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm DJ Patil, head of technology at Devoted Health and former U.S. chief data scientist. And tonight, we're joined by Nancy Lublin, CEO and founder of Crisis Textline and Loris.ai. We're discussing a topic that has been the center of a national conversation this year, mental health and suicide prevention. We'll explore how to leverage the power of data and technology to support these, those experiencing mental health stress and those in the time of need and crisis. Please join me in helping give Nancy Lublin a well, warm welcome to Inforum. So... So there is so much ground to cover today, uh, uh, but, but let's just start talking about by what, what was the genesis of crisis text line? Where did that come from? You want to start there? Oh, we got to start there. Okay. Yeah. It's going to get dark quickly. Yep. Uh, so I was the CEO of do something.org, um, which is the largest organization for young people in America. It's about 6 million members now. That's bigger than the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts combined. Um, maybe because it's not homophobic. Um, shots fired in like my first 30 seconds, right? <laughs> this is going to be fun. Um, uh, but you also, haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> right, but also because it's by text, yeah. um, which for those of you who have young people or know young people, that's basically the only way they communicate unless they're playing Fortnite and then they message in the game. But anyway, and, um, and, uh, and so you really only text with do something, your parents and your friends. Um, there's not really text spam. In fact, do you know that the mobile carriers are blocking about 80% of the messages being sent to you? The mobile carriers don't want what happened to uh, email with lots of spam to happen to text because they still make money. So anyway, um, so text is a really trusted medium. So whenever Do Something sends out a message to its members about a campaign, um, you know, a couple hundred thousand kids will do those campaigns. It's incredible, huge open rates. Um, but there'll always be a couple dozen messages out of flow that have nothing to do with the campaign, but are things like, I'm being bullied and I don't want to go to school. Um, my best friend is addicted to crystal meth. What should I do? And so we would triage those. Uh, here's a hotline number. Talk to your school principal. Try your mom. And then, um, and then we got a message that said, um, he won't stop raping me. It's my dad. He told me not to tell anyone. And the letters R-U-T for are you there? And we gave her the phone number for Rain, the rape and incest organization. I came in the next day and said, what happened? Um, didn't hear back from her. I don't know if it was a burner phone. I don't know if her father saw the message. I don't know if she's dead or alive. And about a year ago, uh, one of my coworkers said to me, you know, you always use a female pronoun when you tell that story and you don't know that that texter was female, which is true. So within about two weeks of that, um, and I've tried to call and text and message that over the past almost eight years now. It was, it'll be eight years in August. Um, anyway, uh, within two weeks of getting those messages um, from, from them, um, I had the idea for Crisis Text Line. Because if someone was going to reach out, if they were that desperate and that alone, 
And that comfortable sharing that by text, someone needed to make a hotline by text. Yeah. Why make it a separate organization from Do Something? Uh, um, so I brought the idea to the to the organization, and they said it's a great idea, but it's a very different brand from Do Something, which I totally respect. The board was right. And so they said Do Something is uplifting, it's positive, it's social action and volunteerism. It's very different. And so they said if you want to do that, that's going to have to be your side hustle. So it was. And, um, and, and in fairness, we can talk about this. It took two years to get it funded. Um, which it's very hard to get new things funded in the social change space. Um, uh, and then we launched and, and I actually had hired somebody else to run it. And then eventually it, it grew. And so I left do something to go run crisis text line full time. Mm-hmm. So one thing I've, kn- I've known about you f- 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 as long as I've known you, you've never had just one job. You, you've always seemed to have at least a couple jobs at, at minimum. Are you, are you counting motherhood? <laughs> uh, so you really have like 15 jobs. <laughs> uh, so when, when you were looking at this and, and you, know, you were just realizing that this is a new thing and, and you're trying to get people, you're saying, hey, this is not just hap- is something that can happen and do something, but something has to, has to newly emerge to take this on. You're watching suicide hotlines. You're watching all these groups. You're trying to convince people. What, what, what was the thing that got people to realize to buy into this idea? I mean, funders didn't, honestly. Uh, funders didn't. Funders don't like new things um, because they're like, well, we only fund in these three areas and that doesn't fit in our areas. Well, no shit, it's new. New things don't fit old buckets. Like, it's never going to fit an old bucket. Yeah. So the funders, are those people from DRK and Omidyar clapping? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, well, there's so an incredible irony with that statement. If we're here, we're having this conversation here in the middle of San Francisco, the hotbed of where oh, everyone loves to talk about starting profit, new It would have been so much easier. If it would have been a for-profit, I would have been in an incubator. I would have had seed funding. I mean, yeah, totally. But as a not-for-profit people, people are more fearful. It's not even their money. That's the funniest part. Like you're funding some other rich person, using some other rich person's money to put into these organizations. Just like give it away easier. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, but it was really easy to convince the users. Super easy. We had product market fit before we ever launched. I mean, it was essentially being triaged out of do something. So clearly, and then we launched quietly in Chicago and El Paso. We pulled 4,000 mobile numbers from the do something database in Chicago. Bless you. And then three weeks later in El Paso, um, and, uh, did we even get to launch in El Paso? We did. I felt like it, September 1st. So yeah. August 1st in Chicago, Chicago, September 1st in El Paso, 4,000 mobile numbers in each place where we just texted them saying, hey, if you or someone you know needs this service, there's this new number, which meant they had to re-opt in. Hmm. And still within four months, we were in all 295 area codes in the United States. Yeah. I mean, that's product market fit. If you go back and look at the original growth of, of Facebook, my understanding is that this was actually faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that that, uh, I remember in the early days you telling me was that there was something unique happened when somebody texted you a picture of a bathroom stall and the crisis text line number was in the bathroom stall. Yeah, people would just start sharing it. We just, people just started sharing it organically. Bathrooms, my dream... (laughs) Here's a creepy thing. My, um, <laughs> my dream is to be in all the bathrooms in America. <laughs> I don't know how many people can say that, but um, there you go. Um, that. 
So you're now the, you've crossed the, the mark of of crisis text line, 100 million text messages. Yeah. That the, over that arc, how long did that take? About five and a half years. So five and a half years. What's the next hundred thousand, hundred million uh, look like? Somewhere between eleven and twelve months. Eleven, twelve months. So that is truly on an exponential curve. I mean, that that's phenomenal. What's behind that? What's behind that growth? Pain. But, but say more. Like what? What? Like what? Is, are we discovering something that's latent in our society? I mean, Do you think look, there's something new here. No, I think you out here know this. I think. I think. I think. I think you know this. Um, maybe you haven't talked about it, but I think you know it. Um, there's a lot of pain out there, and there's a lot of pain in here and everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, text is anonymous; it's private. Um, you don't have to wait for a quiet moment to make a phone call or make an appointment. So it can happen in the heat of the moment. Someone might be texting crisis text line right now. You can do it. We spike every day around lunchtime, um, after school and there are other kids around them. Then there are other grownups around you during a lunch meeting. Um, and you think they're texting like their spouse, maybe they're texting us. Uh, it's incredibly private, confidential. Um, uh, there's no repetition. There's no ums. We just get right by the third message. They've told us everything. 65% of people who text us say they've shared something with us. They've never shared with another human being. So we're the first people they come out to. We're the first people they share um, that they have panic attacks. We're the first, the first time they share that they're hearing voices. Um, that happens with us for the first time by text. Hmm. Could you just walk the audience through how it works? Well, the beautiful thing is that for texters, it's common usage. It's not an app. There's nothing to download. You just text 741741 like you would text, you know, your best friend. Um, And for crisis counselors who are the secret sauce to this whole thing, who we should really talk about, um, they're on a laptop or a desktop, but they're on a computer. this, This is a, so you have these crisis counselors who are an all volunteer network. And they're the ones that you connect people to. Basically, you, you've created a marketplace, it's a marketplace. In, a, in, a, in a way. It's a marketplace. It's a market. It's a time-sensitive marketplace. So it's more like a Lyft um, or like a TaskRabbit than it is like an Airbnb or, or an Etsy. So it's a time-sensitive marketplace. The most important thing for us is speed, mm-hmm. um, like Lyft. And um, so we, but in this instance, we don't control supply. We don't control our crisis counselors because they're all volunteers. And we don't control demand because it's kind of unpredictable. Um, so it's, just, it's Seth Godin calls this the worst business he's ever heard of. Mm-hmm. He thinks this is the dumbest thing he's ever heard of. He's like, it's a marketplace. So you don't control either side. A hundred percent of your customers are miserable. Like that's a hundred percent. Like no one's texting us being like, I got a promotion today. <laughs> you know, like I got engaged. Woo. No, no one texts us to say that they're all at their their lowest point. Then we have volunteers handle them. And then we leave behind a transcript a hundred percent of the time. It's bananas. Wow. And what, 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 what's behind a crisis counselor finding crisis text line and joining and doing well, the training the best people and- in America. Say more. They, 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 are, they are the best people. Are there any crisis counselors here? Okay. They're the best people in America. Right? Yeah. That was, that was before I knew you were here, but they are the best people in America. So these are 
people who apply online, they go through a background check, about a 34-hour training. Not everybody passes. It's easier to get into most colleges in America than it is to become a crisis counselor with a crisis text line. And then they do this at home in their jammies on their couch. Um, it's amazing. And they are strangers talking to strangers in their darkest moments. Um, and they're, they're just, I call them a love machine. I, I know that sounds, that's maybe not the right way to describe it, but, um, but it, it, it kind of is, mm-hmm. but well, like in I mean, a the clean power way, to, in like they, a clean if, way. If people are in pain, yes. the best power to heal would it's be, love. would be love. It's, right? it's empathy. I mean, that's their empathy MVPs. How, how do you, how do you get empathy to shine in texts? You know, it's one of the things that we often think of is like, no, no, you have to call and talk to somebody. You, you can't show empathy through a text message. Are, are we just antiquated with that model of the so world? It's pretty interesting. For most of our history, we think of um, uh, facial expressions and modulation, sound, as the sources of emotion. I mean, even what you just did right there. Or when you go to the theater, you think of that. You think of the expression. You think of sound. But actually, the next wave of communication is messaging, um, is really going to be messaging without sound and without without um, visuals. And it turns out that we have discovered through our data that there are things, there are words that you can say and word patterns, engrams, bigrams, trigrams, combinations of things um, that are a more effective way of showing empathy um, um, than not. So, um, for example... Um, the words smart, proud, brave, and also the word impressive that's been on the rise in the last two years, um, are kind of magic words that make people feel heard. Um, never ask a question that starts with the word why, like, why did you make that decision? As opposed to who did you make that decision with? Or when did you make that decision? Why did you make that decision? Sounds condescending automatically puts someone on the defense. Hmm. So there are all kinds of things like that. Um, the, the most important thing we find in conversations are st- what are called strength IDs that crisis counselors can tell you about. A strength ID is um, a word or a combination of words that um, show, remind someone how strong they are. Um, um, so it's um, a word like you're stronger than you know, or that was a really smart decision that you made. Wow. Or, um, gosh, that's an Im- impressive th- way to react to that situation. Those are strength ideas. Hmm. How, how do you, like, you know, it, there's this version of view of the world of the, the, the crisis counselors all come from, you know, a walk of life of where they all know how, about texting and how to be super savvy. I watch my kids text now and I don't have a clue what they're saying. Uh, it, or the, the people who are being served. Talk to us about the people and, and the, the walks of life that they come from. So our texters are skew young, um, poor, and diverse. So 75% of our users are under the age of 25, including now about 15% under the age of 13. Wow. Huge middle school issue, and which is to me really astounding because they don't even all have phones. So that's, that's bananas. Um, poor, if you take the nation's lowest by socioeconomic status, the poorest 10% of America, they're using 19% of our volume. So we double over index the poorest people in America and then diverse 19% um, Hispanic, 12% black and five and a half percent native American, which is really interesting because only one and a half percent of America is native American. Um, so we really over index and that's in part because they're so rural. Hmm. And there's just nothing else for them to turn to. So we really are a lifeline to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that I think surprised me also is that the, the number of veterans. 
One and a half percent of our texters are um, veterans or military personnel. Um, and um, we have a chunk of crisis counselors who are also veterans or military personnel. And they are some of my favorites. When, when volume really goes bananas and we have a spike, they're the ones who say things in global chat like, we got this, let's go. And they're, they're pretty amazing. Hulk smash is another one. Yeah. What's the most surprising thing that you've, you've learned like, as, you, as you kind of have gone on this, this, this journey into, in, into the, the, the heart of our pain as, 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 as a nation? I think, I mean, look, there are some specific data points, some things that I've learned, like I didn't really know about self-harm um, before I got into this. Self-harm is cutting, um, but it's cutting not with the intent to end your life. It's cutting um, really as a way to process pain and to feel um, I didn't realize how much cutting was going on. Those middle schoolers that I described under the age of 13, 20% of them indicate that they're self-harming. 20% of those middle schoolers. That's, I, I, that was not something I was I mean, 20%, really that's aware a of. Fifth. Yeah. I mean, it's stunning yeah. to think if we had, if we had, if we split took, took this audience and we, it's, it's spread out, like literally, if you look to someone on front of you, side of you or behind you, that's at least one of them. But you wouldn't know. So the thing is, is that I remember, I remember eating disorders when I was in high school and you kind of knew, like you knew the person who was struggling with an eating disorder. You could see it. Um, you can't really see cutting. There's long sleeves, there's pants. A lot of these parents don't know that it's happening. The other thing that's fascinating to me about self-harm is half of it is happening during the school day. Wow. Um, when we see the time of day for self-harm, when we look at that, it's, it's pretty interesting. So it may be happening at school. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the ones I think you, you, uh, that I also I, I did not see coming, but you, you, you shared with me, was that the time of day for middle schoolers, particularly uh, young women, and, and lunch issues and eating disorders and all of that manifesting on the platform as well. So we've aggregated and anonymized all of this and made it available at crisistrends.org. Um, which is you should just go and spend time there and see time of day, day of the week. You can see that anyone else here from Connecticut, number one anxiety state. Um, <laughs> so we're number one. Yay. Um, Montana, anyone? Beautiful place to visit. You might not want to live there. Number one suicidal ideation state. Anyway, so um, all that, I told you I was funny. So um <laughs> Uh, yeah, all of that we've aggregated and anonymized and made available at Crisis Trends, hoping that people will talk about these things, um, will learn, um, will stop just using anecdote and hyperbole and actually bathe in fact mm-hmm. and really deal with the truth and bust myths. I mean, that's, I mentioned self-harm as one of the learnings. That's one of the specific issue learnings, but the biggest learning, the biggest journey for me in doing this organization has been the power of the data to bust myths and speak truth, um, both for business insights for us and how we build and what we build and for the world. Here's, here's one myth that holiday is terrible. Holiday is great. People are sleeping. Um, and, and sleep is a huge part of this, by the way. Um, so holiday, our traffic goes down now, right before holiday is not so good. That's finals. Hmm. So exam time, terrible. Um, but holidays kind of awesome. Wow. When, when you kind of, you know, it's, it always strikes me as something fascinating is like everyone talks about the wave of data science and all the cool things that can happen with data. Most organizations have an incredibly difficult time figuring out how to get insights out of their data. Yet, you can just 
rattle off insight after insight after insight. What is it that Crisis Text Line has done culturally to figure out how to make use of the data? Well, you were one of our founding board members. (laughs) (laughs) So you were one of the first people I went to, and you made me a lot smarter. Um, And so we built what I would call a data-first company where we knew, and then our first two hires were a CTO and a chief data scientist, and um, we knew that we wanted to be data-first, that everything we did we would want to collect, store, and analyze and do it in real time, that if you can't measure it, it doesn't matter. Um, if you can't measure it, you don't really know how it's, how it's, how it's going. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the phrase like, oh, it's going so great, or the classic thing in the not-for-profit sector of how is it going, and then you tell one story to make people cry. Like that's the classic not-for-profit way. Let me tell you a story about someone who almost died and then we saved. That's just some bullshit right there to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, what really matters is actually some of the aggregate numbers and really showing like how things are trending and what we're learning. So from the very beginning, we wanted to use data to make us faster and more accurate and make the world better. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we have just always been data first that way. And you, I mean, there's some fun stuff that we do with the data that makes us faster and more accurate, like stack ranking the queue based on severity. So yeah, tell us about that. Like, yeah. I, I think it's useful to kind of go into yeah. some of the details. Yeah. So we think that we should function more like a hospital emergency room than say, um, like Delta airlines. <laughs> so like you call, you call an airline, not to pick on them, all the airlines. So you call an airline and you go in the queue in chronological order. Like, Really, my flight's in an hour, and like this other person in the queue is planning Thanksgiving. Take me first. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a hospital, right, where's Anthony? In a hospital, and there's at least one doctor here. In a hospital, you take the gunshot wound before the kid with the sprained ankle, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So we should, too. We're a hotline. So when we first built the algorithm, we put words in there like die, suicide, overdose, scary words. And we knew that if those words showed up, we should take those people first. And that worked pretty well. Um, but then when the corpus got to around 20 million messages, um, we looked, when do we really have to call 911? Because in, in about half a percentage point of the time, we have to call in what's called an active rescue. When someone has the ideation, the plan, the means, and the timing, right, crisis counselors, and we can't de-escalate, we call 911 and we trigger an active rescue. So um, we looked when we got to around 20 million messages, like when, what are the words where we really, we need to call it in? And it turns out there are thousands of words and word combinations that are more lethal than the word suicide. For example, the word military. If you text in and say, I'm in the military, it's twice as likely that we're going to have to call 911 than if you text in and say, I want to die by suicide. Hmm. The unhappy face crying emoji, four times as likely that we're going to have to call uh, in an active rescue than the word suicide. By the way, same with bridge and gun. Those are also four times as likely that we'll have to call in an active rescue. And there's one family of words that's between five and 16 times more likely that we will have to call 911. Um, it's a family of words. You, want to t- you know the answer, but anybody else want to take a guess what that family of words? What are the most lethal words in America? Pills. Any name, drug. Everything from Tylenol and ibuprofen to Xanax, Prozac, fentanyl. Um, and even the word CVS is now showing up um, as a lethal word. And there was a word, like monkey. We were like, 
who was dying by monkey? And um, <laughs> it turns out that monkey is a cocktail of opioids um, that's hitting the streets in certain parts of the country. So we found that. And so we put those words into the algorithm, and now we take our high-risk people in on average about 22 seconds. Mm-hmm. So that is an example. Yeah, I like someone said, ooh, that's good, yeah. Someone, um, so um, that, to me, is an example of using data for good. Wow. That is... I mean, I think it's great that we can all get a car in the rain and we don't have to wait for a taxi anymore. And I think it's great that, like, I can book at a sushi restaurant. But you know what? It doesn't really change my life that much. And as we're now seeing, it's not really changing those drivers' lives that much either. But you know what is? Like, the work that we're doing with data science or the work there's some people here from change.org tonight or the work that Kiva's doing with data scientists or or donors choose. There's a burgeoning, just growing, exciting field of people using data and technology for good. Yeah, well, it's incredible. You should be clapping at that. Yeah. Okay, great. I agree. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's phenomenal. And, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's as adage, you are building superpowers for the crisis counselors to really be even more effective than they could be if they were just trying to engage. Yeah, they're kind of like... Uh... They're like empathy mutants already. They're pretty special people to mm-hmm. start with. But then like we're doing something to just kind of magnify their powers. I think that would be an accurate. And I meant it as complimentary, a way of describing it. Yeah, X-Men style. Yeah, that's where I was going. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, but so, like the last X-Men, not the current version. Not the, yeah, yeah. agreed. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that you, you touched on there that, that is, is a is a very part of the national dialogue right now is shootings. Yeah. We have the largest increase of, of white male mortalities uh, in middle age that we've ever seen in the nation since data has been recorded. We have a active shooters in schools and a tragedy that's happening there. We have guns being used in all sorts of different situations that are resulting in horrific incidents. What are you seeing from the crisis text line in regards to this this dialogue. What, can you shed any light on this? Um, two things. One, um, so we trigger these active rescues that I mentioned, and um, that's when someone's at imminent risk of harm to themselves or others. One to two times a day. We're doing about 30 active rescues a day. Um, but one so to two of those. So that means 30 times a day you're calling 911 on someone's behalf of someone. So you, yep. I mean, you're literally saving lives every day, every day, but one to two of those every day are homicidal. One to two of those every day is someone threatening to shoot up a school. It's mostly school shootings and some mall bombings, um, things like that. But, um, and when that first started happening, I was like, why are they texting us? Clearly we're going to contact the FBI or, or the police. Um, and then I had to realize they're not people thinking logically, so if you're at that point, you're beyond the point of logic. Um, so yes, they reach out to us and we do. We've, we've done a lot of work. There are things that you have never heard of. Um, one of them I can share with you from three years ago because it hit the newspaper three years ago. Someone texted in um, in Texas to say he only felt pleasure when he inflicted pain. He kept mementos. Um, he hated women and he was going to shoot up a women's college. This is on Christmas Eve. And... Um, uh, we called in the active rescue and they went and they found him at home with an arsenal of loaded weapons and a human foot. Um, so we're doing those every day. Um, but your bigger question is like, what's going on? And I will say, um, actually Jackie's here who runs this. 
One of the other exciting things about our corpus is how juicy it is for research, right? So all of the messages, not just the conversations, but the messages are tagged in real time. We have survey data from humans on both sides. 19% of texters fill out the survey and almost 100% of crisis counselors fill out the survey. And it's all in that heat of the moment. So it's a really juicy data corpus. Under her leadership and also Bob, our chief data scientist, we've had three papers published so far on our corpus, including the most recent one from Ohio State looking at the language of child abuse, which, shocker, kids don't say abuse. They, can you guess the word they use? Mean. My dad's mean. Um, so discovering the language of child abuse in our corpus. And there are 10 papers coming in just the next 18 months. Wow. So an enormous event of research. So my real answer to your question on guns is, I don't know. And if there's someone out there who's a researcher, you should apply to look at our corpus and figure out what the heck is going on. Um, and um, we love enclave research. You have to go through an IRB process. We're pretty we're sticklers on privacy, as you might imagine. But it would be amazing for someone to look at this data and try and figure it out. Does, do policymakers listen? You were in government. What do you think? <laughs> that was kind of easier. <laughs> well, I'm wondering what you, you have. The data is just so crisp here. And, and you literally, you saved. I mean, I can't imagine how many lives you saved on Christmas Eve. I mean, yeah, that, was, that would have been ugly. Um, my, look, my fantasy on this for, for us and for everybody else where there's data at your fingertips is that we get, I remember where you used to go out for a dinner party and you'd like hang out with friends and you'd have a debate about something like what time did, um, did, was Pearl Harbor bombed? And people would like debate about it. And now you just, someone who has their phone on the table just looks it up. And so you have an answer. Like so many of the things that we argue about, there are facts and we should be turning to those. So I, I have a fantasy of like some of the stupid politicians who are standing on their sort of faux principle or religion. It's like I'm at the Commonwealth Club, I can say this, right? Yeah. So like that they actually have to turn to fact because there are facts underlying the opioid issue. There are facts underlying um, if you match policy and you match the messages that we get on uh, sexual assault, on trafficking, on um, LGBTQIA issues. I mean, just look at what the impact of, of your homophobic policies turns out to be. Right. It's not really, it shouldn't be a debate for people who have different opinions when there's fact underlying things. I'm really excited about living in a fact-based world. Can you go a little bit more into the, the uh, um, trafficking yeah, I mean, um, one of the most harrowing conversations I ever had on the platform was with a woman who was chained to a bed and said her boyfriend was mean and making her have sex with his friends. And I sent her, um, I, I asked her if she wanted a, a resource, and she said yes, and I sent her a referral for a sex trafficking organization, and she wrote back and said, that's not me. And then I gave her a domestic violence um, referral, and she was like, okay, that's really helpful, thank you. The thing about trafficking is that most people being trafficked don't know that they're being trafficked. Um, and um, I look, trafficking is a really interesting thing for you all to wrestle with here in San Francisco, where there's such a huge homeless issue, um, because that's a huge part of trafficking, especially for young people. It's called survival sex, and they don't have a, they don't have a place to stay. And so someone offers them a place to stay, and it, it comes with some responsibility, is how they think of it. How do you say stay sane doing this? Um, I don't. Like, I, it's seriously, it's seriously. It's like, how do you stay healthy? 
How, how, I'm how, not. Uh, you know, come on. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. I, I think he it's just, really DJ's important. DJ's like my best friend, and he just saw me eat like eight Andy's candies and half a thing of M&M's backstage. <laughs> You're totally setting me up on this one. No, I mean, I've been healthier than this. This is not my most healthy state. I mean, no, this is, this is a really freaking hard job. I mean, um, this is a really hard job. And the part that's hard about it is not the part that you would think. Those conversations are joyful. And I used that word before Marie Kondo. But they are joyful. <laughs> they, are, they, are, they are joyful conversations. Like 86% of texters at the end of the conversation say that it was helpful. Like this is an amazing, you're in a miserable place and you get to a less miserable place because someone loved on you selflessly. And that crisis counselor doesn't even know you or not going to get a thank you note probably and will never know know what happened, but they just did it. These people do it because it's the right thing to do. And because it's purely altruistic. That is beautiful. That part of the job you would think would be the hard part because, you know, people are texting in about being chained to a bed. There's some hard stuff going on. That is not the hard part. The hard part's running the company. The hard part's running the company. I, I work with people who are feelers who really want to make a difference. What's up? Um, <laughs> I got three coworkers over here. Um, right? Like the hard part is running the company. They're, they're feelers. They're doing this as opposed to, right, left Amazon to come join us, as opposed to, to doing that because they really care about this. And so the stakes are that much higher and you really want to get it right. Um, a lot of people in the organization um, have their own mental health issues, um, a lived experience, which I love and I totally believe in. It also makes it just a lot harder to run. Um, I don't have the luxury of a bad day as the CEO. Most CEOs in startups, you don't really have the luxury of a bad day. You constantly have to be cheerleading. But I am policed. My language is policed. My, um, my, my mental health and, and attitude are policed. I get home at the end of the day and I'm freaking exhausted. And I just, I just collapse. I have people who are friends here and they know I have been in healthier places than I have been in the last few years in this, in this organization. It has been... Um, it has been both and is both the biggest privilege and the most impactful thing I have ever done and um, the worst on me personally and my relationships. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. You know, one of the things I think with that is it's an interesting parallel. If you think about the growth of crisis text line, like we said, if it was, if it was any other company, if it was a for-profit, you'd have investors banging down the door to try to invest. To find I'd have a house in Healdsburg and a Tesla. <laughs> well, not only that, but, but the latitude you would get to run an organization is far greater. We've seen platforms and companies that come up with get incredible latitude about how they run the company and, and, and doing things. Yet you're on the front lines yourself. You, I mean, you take, you're on the platform every night answering the text messages. You're that's up my favorite place to be. That I'm fine with. Someone's really got to sneeze. Bless you. What, 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 so what is it, what's wrong with our system here of of philanthropy and everything. Cause there's no IPO the model. Business that model of not-for-profits is fakakta. Someone translate that. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes absolutely no sense. It's I do great work. Please give me money. Mm-hmm. What? 
And, uh, or like, and I'll feed you a salmon. I mean, like, truly, the dinners, the dinners have got to stop. The dinners are the worst. I'll trot somebody across the stage and everyone will cry and maybe there'll be an auction and you'll write a bigger check. That makes no sense. So we don't do dinners. Um, we have tried to raise money like for-profits raise money, right? Like raise it in rounds. Um, because the, one of the biggest challenges of not-for-profits is that all the money is restricted. So you meet with the foundation, you pitch the foundation, they say, sure, we'll give you like $2 million to cover the next three years, and you've got to meet these exact metrics, and we'll release the money in tranches according to these metrics, which means you are locked in to whatever it was that you saw on that date like three years ago, which literally limits innovation, limits your ability to pivot. So Trump gets elected and you can't go in whatever direction you need to go in because now there's a lot of different things happening. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, so, uh, so, and I would argue that people who are working in social change are working on the biggest and the hardest problems. So they should have the most money and the best talent, not the dregs. Yeah. Instead, instead, it feels like we get the little crunchy French fries at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Let's talk. Not about barrel. Whatever a French fries made in. Yeah. Basket. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's talk about the role of the platforms in this. Then, you know, we're having a conversation right now around the role of platforms in spreading fake news. You know, spreading discord, uh, trolls, all all of this. We yet we also have our systems, whether it's Siri or Alexa. And you've, we've had reporters talk about this, how you can do quick searches like, hey, Alexa, tell me how to hurt myself or Siri, you pick your favorite thing or people doing Google searches or Facebook groups. What's the role of the platforms in this and what should their role actually be? A third of all of our conversations mention social media. So um, I would argue that... Um, there are companies that are part of fostering the pain that people are feeling. And I believe that they have a responsibility to confront that pain. Um, the interesting thing is these, these, it's called safe harbor. The safe harbor rules that protect um, social media and search companies from being responsible for those things, those, that's, the same, that's like why they're not paying fines for Russian hacking and things like that because it's safe harbor. They're not responsible. for. They just build the pipes, and what happens on their pipes is really not on them. And those same laws affect us. Um, I, I don't know. I think regulation, I think it's kind of inevitable. Did everybody see Chris Hughes' op-ed? That was really pretty powerful. Um, so... Uh, I would argue that at least there are certain things, trafficking, certainly trafficking of children, bomb making and suicide ought to fall outside safe harbor. I think those are easy. Um, like there shouldn't even be any question about those. Uh, I will say that there are a handful of social media and search companies who of their own volition have partnered with us to handle the bad shit that happens on their platform. Mm -hmm. So um, YouTube was the first. Um, so good on you, YouTube, Snapchat, um, um, Kick, we worked with for a long time. We're not working with them anymore, but we did for a long time. Um, uh, Facebook, and there are some companies I didn't mention. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things that's interesting, well, even in that, so let's, let's maybe let's go in the realm of policy for a second. You know, one of the things that's been out there previously was when landlines were really the dominant form. 
the taxes from landline, there's a tax assessed on landlines that goes to fund 911. There's some challenges with that right now. I'd love for you to kind of get into that you're seeing around the, the shift from landline. But there's also this question that, that's there of maybe there should be a tax on these platforms so that an increased portion of the revenue can go to support efforts like, like yours and the work that you're doing. I, I don't know. I mean, um, I don't know. It should be smart people in the White House like you who figure this shit out. <laughs> I don't know if it's a tax or some form of regulation. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. Um, somebody needs to figure it out. Well, let's break this part first. So maybe you could talk to us about the 911 part. So the 911 situation, yeah. The nine, how many of you have a landline? Yeah, front row. Hi, guys. <laughs> DJ's family has a landline. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, landline. So, so 911, there are 6,500 911 offices in America. Um, it's totally fragmented and local. These are some of the best people I've ever met, um, 911 operators. If you think about it, they are the first, first responders. They are the front line of Homeland Security. You don't call the fire department. You don't call the police department. You call 911. And they're there for us. Um, and they are funded by local landline taxes. They are totally fucked. I mean, like, I, don't, I can't think of another word for it. That is, that is not awesome. Mm-hmm. There's a better way of saying it. It's not awesome. Um, so, yeah, landline taxes? Are you kidding me? And then they each make their own software, a whole bunch of them. So they're not even connected to each other. Think of the... They can't even receive texts. As well, I a lot, most of them cannot receive texts. I will tell you that one of the best 911s is actually in Sunnyvale. And you can do something called a sit-along. You know, like you do a ride-along with a police car. You can do a sit-along at the Sunnyvale um, 911. And they're just amazing people. And to watch how they, how they operate is pretty fascinating. But we depend on that ecosystem, right? If you think about things, we are all... All of your companies, everything that you do, um, it, they're in ecosystems. So when we call in those active rescues, we 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 depend on nine one one to be there for us. I will tell you, my favorite product is something that we built. They know what I'm going to say. My favorite product. Um, how many of you ever ordered a Domino's pizza? Okay, I'll admit it. Okay. <laughs> so um, so Domino's pizza. You order Domino's pizza, and it's like um, your pizza is being made. Your pizza is in the oven. Your pizza is out for delivery. It's a pizza tracker, and it literally like shows you where it is. By the way, also insomnia cookies. Anyone else stoner middle of the night cookies? There you are. Okay. So um, <laughs> it's so there's also in San Francisco. You all are right. Okay. So so anyway, insomnia cookies also has a tracker that tells you where your cookie is, and very important. And um, <laughs> And so one of our supervisors at one point was like, why do I know more about a pizza when I order a pizza than I know when I call in an active rescue? And so I was like, hey, let's build a pizza tracker. So we built a pizza tracker and our crisis counselors who've ever done an active rescue know there's a pop-up that says like, your texter's being located, you know, 911 is being contacted, someone's being dispatched. And so it literally tracks it, um, which is awesome. And it's great for transparency and consistency. But here's the part that really gets me excited is it means we've done more than 22,000 active rescues using Pizza Tracker. Does anyone see where I'm going with this? We have timestamps for 22,000 active rescues for thousands of PSAP of 911 offices around America. So we know the fast and slow police departments in America. Mm-hmm. You also know the slowest. We know the slowest. We know the fast and the slow. So if 911 was actually a federal system, um, it was a national system like that, you would actually have better data tracking. Would you publish that list? Because <laughs> I, I would want to know where my, my city Yeah, you're not in the White House anymore um, <laughs> uh, Would we publish that list? You know what, we really 
we don't want to shame any of these 911 offices. We would rather right now partner with the 911 offices to help them evolve. Why not just share the list with them? And maybe use it for leverage. Sorry. Um, it's like, it's like <laughs> um, yes, we have been working with um, with the 911s. There's there's two different associations that are like um, like industry associations, uh, trade trade groups that work with the 911, and we work with both of them and love them. I, I really I don't want to shame them. I would really okay. I'd rather help them improve. However, if there's a research project that applied to Jackie who wanted to look at all this data, then Jackie might say yes. So we're going to take uh, questions in just a couple minutes. So if you have a question, uh, there's microphones in the back where you can line up to, to, to um, uh, give your, uh, ask your question. Please make sure to keep your question nice and short and end with a question because we want to maximize uh, the time to ask questions. Uh, Nancy, just two quick ones before we go to the questions. First, uh, what would you like the platforms to do? Because there's many people here who are probably work at some of these companies. I'd like you to partner with us. So we work inside Facebook Messenger now. You can contact us inside Messenger, which opened up a whole new world. Um, uh, we would want to partner with social media and search companies to handle this bad stuff. And we think we should be paid. We think we should be paid. It's um, just be, it's a, it's a not-for-profit. Um, that doesn't mean it has less value. In fact, I think we need to get to a place in America where we realize it probably means it has more value. Yeah. So, so talk, uh, not the, the, which is my uh, last question before we take, go to Q&A, is you just launched internationally in the UK. You're actually international in Canada already. You, you had a, a really fascinating announcement just a little bit ago. You, the royal family just chimed in in their support for you. Talk, talk to us about that. Where's Nicole? You, were, Nicole you got your Prince Charming years ago, I told, Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes. Uh, about three years ago, it was actually a couple of days after the election, November 2016, oddly. And um, um, so... Uh, the royals, this generation of royals. So at the time it was William, Kate, and Harry. It was before they had their American princess. Um, <laughs> William, Kate, and Harry have, have focused on mental health. That is their big issue. And I was invited to a small dinner and seated directly next to William um, at a dinner. And um, and so was able to talk to him about William, crisis time. Prince, well, Prince William. No, no, we are not on... <laughs> The Duke is actually how I'm supposed to refer to him. Anyway, so next, the Duke of Cambridge. And, um, and so was able to, sh to talk to him about, about Crisis Tech Sign. And so they sort of secretly, quietly were our funder to bring Crisis Tech Sign to the UK. And they've already handled more than 60,000 conversations. Um, and and um, then the Duke of Cambridge released a video last week. And they've visited the offices multiple times. They've met with crisis counselors. And um, they released a video um, last Last week, announcing that they were funding Crisis Tech Sign, and actually, the impact of that video has been fascinating. The call was really for volunteers, for more people in the UK to become crisis counselors, and um, they had over ten thousand applications. Wow! Um, since then, it's awesome. Amazing. So that video did its thing. 
And, um, and then they saw three times, three times normal volume. So they had a nice spike over the weekend in the UK. So yeah, look, we're in Canada, which is multilingual sing- single instance. So French and English in Canada. And then we're in the UK. We're about to launch in Ireland in June. Uh, uh, Australia, it looks like in September... September and it is now um, and then uh, and then we're going to do South Africa and Q1 which will be four uh, four languages single country and then we're going to do Latin America which will be single language multi-country if you see where I'm going we're moving our way towards omnilingual which is really the goal is to get to it right now we're internationalizing the platform so a lot of DevOps work so we're internationalizing the platform and going country by country the hope is in the next say four years that um, translation tools and privacy standards will be more consistent and improved so that we'll be able to then everybody counsel everybody and be omnilingual, um, which is great for more empathy in the world. It'll help us with time zones because most of our volume comes in the middle of the night, as the crisis counselors out here probably know. Um, so that's really the place we're trying to get to. Amazing. Uh, we got a long list of people who would like to ask questions. So let's go to questions. Hi, great presentation. Thank you. Um, one very quick question. How many uh, simultaneous conversations do your crisis counselors carry on at, at one time? And then the second part of my question is a, a more complex one, which you can punt on. But I've just noticed with the shooter, you were speaking to active shooters earlier, and I've noticed in the press there's this tendency to describe people of color shooters as terrorists and um, white men as sort of lone wolves. And I don't know if you guys have any data on that or could comment on that. But the first question I'm actually very interested in is about how many simultaneous conversations. So I kind of get bored if I handle fewer than three or four conversations at a time. Um, so I don't know about the crisis counselors here. I've seen some people nodding, but um, there it's asynchronous. So, so text is asynchronous. So there can be a few minutes in between and it kind of gets boring. See, they're nodding. It kind of gets boring. So you can handle multiple conversations conversations at a time, which is just, it's great for our numbers, right? It's, it's much more, excuse me, economical. Um, and we build the platform that way. And actually Ben, one of our, uh, our PMs is actually working on a new platform view to make it even easier to handle multiple conversations. Um, so that's the first one. The second part of your question is, uh, is really about race and, um, which should inform everybody's work in this room no matter where you work or what you do, um, it, it should be a huge part of what everyone's doing. I mean, especially as I look out and see a largely white crowd, we like owe a debt. And um, um, it, it, the country isn't equal. Not everybody uh, comes up the same way or is born in the same system. And what's really fascinating about Crisis Text Line is that there's a veil of ignorance. And so... I don't think that most crisis counselors imagine that a third, more than a third of their conversations are with someone who is um, ethnically or racially diverse. And um, that veil of ignorance is really powerful. We've looked at the data, and when you match crisis counselor to texter by race, um, by gender, or by location, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is actually speed. That veil of ignorance is incredibly powerful. There are a whole bunch of other parts about our work that I still um, am concerned about, like when we trigger an active rescue and we send um, police or an EMT to a neighborhood that's largely made of immigrants. I worry about ICE showing up. When we send someone to the door um, and the person says that they have a gun and they're gonna, they want to attempt suicide, I'm worried that if it's a young black man who opens the door, I'm worried how the police may react. So um, look, but all of our work 
um, including the journalists that the, the person asking the question referenced, like all of our work is laden with um, the need for um, solidarity and improved allyship. And I, I just think that's a responsibility that everybody needs to take, no matter what your work is, whether you're an accountant or a dentist or, or you work in social justice explicitly. Oh. Uh-huh. Let's go to another question. Yeah. Uh, first of all, this is insanely impressive. So congratulations to you. And impressive. Good there. word. See what I did there. Um, sorry to be that guy. I have two questions. Well, I'll make it brief. One on the business side. How do you uh, dynamically match supply and demand, given that you mentioned that the counselors were all voluntarily? And second, um, to that last point that you were making, obviously, as you scaled this and socialized it across all the area codes, you probably had to do a lot of outreach locally to law enforcement, um, to the active teams that play a role in all of these pieces. So can you just walk us through the process of how you built that trust as starting off as an unknown actor to, to one that's ubiquitously used? Marketplaces are really interesting and tricky. I mean, in a way, change.org is a marketplace. Marketplaces are just really, marketplaces are hard. Um, and we don't have the benefit of surge pricing, right? Like, my God, I wish I could pay people, you know, 5X I've had to pay before, um, like in the, in the rain in the middle of the night in New York City to get a lift. So um, yeah, marketplaces are hard and growing lockstep is super challenging. I will tell you that we really love our West Coast crisis counselors because two thirds of our volume happens in the middle of the night. All that anxiety in Connecticut happens like two o'clock in the morning. So we really need night owls and we literally call them owls um, um, here on the West coast we really love people in hawaii um and um um, and we make so so we try to build products to incentivize behavior i actually think um that working at a not-for-profit working in a resource constrained place will hone your skills better than anywhere else so we don't have money to throw at people right to just come on late at night i don't have surge pricing i mean i'm joking but i'm serious i don't have money for surge pricing so you know what i have wit data creativity um, the willingness to try, amazing volunteers. You have a community. A community. Something I think which is underappreciated totally. is that people who, their tribe is the other counselor. We didn't predict that at all. I mean, they are, they've, they're friends. They've bonded with each other. We have a mighty network where they all talk all the time. And um, people have like traveled across the country to hang out with each other. It's amazing. Um, so my favorite product to try and balance this out were literally night owls. We called them owls. We called them night owls. The people come out at night to balance that supply and demand. So we were like, let's actually make an owl icon. So there's three different owls that you can earn. There's Houtdini, Athena. And can you guess what the ultimate owl is? Hedwig, obviously, Hedwig. <laughs> so, um, and so, do we have any Hedwigs here? Is there a Hedwig? Yeah, almost any Athena, Houdini, any other owls? There we go. Okay, good. See, there's some owls. Yay, owls. So, um, and you, you get like a little icon and you have to feed your owl. You got to keep taking conversations to keep your owl. That's one of my favorite products, um, owls. It's amazing. But at, at the same time, you also, you, you really work to, to measure the quality. Of, of the crisis counselors and coach them also. That's something I don't think people always see. That's right. We have coaches. Um, and also the crisis counselors have their own stats, which we looked at like Fitbit and we looked at a whole bunch of other places um, and um, realized that making a, a profile and having people be able to track their own stats, you all probably check your profiles and it shows how many conversations and what types of conversations. And it gives you, there's some texture feedback. And my favorite thing is the word cloud that shows what are the most common words that texters have used with you. And in almost everybody's word cloud, go ahead, say it at the same time, what's the biggest word? It's thanks. 
In everybody's word cloud, the biggest word is thanks. Amazing. It's pretty amazing. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. The work you're doing is really important, and this has been a fascinating conversation. So thanks so much. Um, I'm also going to be that annoying person. I have two questions. I'm going to make them. <laughs> um, first, I totally agree with you that um, seeing the, the the overall numbers, seeing the the big impact of what you're doing, is way more important than the shiny story of here's the one person that we helped just to raise money. However, data shows that that really does help raise money. So how do you, you know, how do you, what does your data say about what works for you? And also how do you sort of balance those two ideas? And secondly, I'm really excited to be living in a time, you know, eventually where data is, you know, data is the king, but in an age of misinformation, you know, how do we actually get those numbers in front of people? Yep. Great question. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, Okay. Uh, so the second question, how do we get the numbers in front of people? We have a board meeting tomorrow where hopefully they're going to vote on spinning out another spin out. We should talk about Loris too, but spinning out, um, a crisis institute, like a think tank basically based. So we've already had 13 papers, right? That are coming. What if we just had an entire group that was just dedicated to fostering research and noise and putting the truth out there? So, um, hopefully that will happen and then we'll raise money for that. The first part of your question was really like, how do you raise money and how do you balance the anecdote. I mean, look, the 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 story, the founding story of how Crisis Text Line was started. I'm always going to tell that story, and I'm always going to tell that story because it's compelling. But I'm also always going to tell that story because I really hope that that texture is out there somewhere and hears me tell the story. I, I've told the story in every place and in every media because somewhere I hope that they are alive and that they hear what they inspired. Um, but it's not lost on me that it's a very compelling story and one of the things that you'll leave with. Having said that, I'm not going to use that to raise money. I'm not asking any of you for money tonight. And I, that's just not how we roll because that's not how Airbnb rolls. And that's not how Twitter rolls. And that's not how other fast growing tech startups, when you build Sidecar, when you build all of these companies, that is not how you build companies. You didn't hold a fucking dinner and then charge people tables. Like that just, that's a bananas way to raise money for a fast going startup. So why should philanthropy behave like that? especially since these organizations, I would argue, are more important than being able to send out a message in 160 characters that you still can't edit. <laughs> so so we, sh we, need, we need chunks of unrestricted money. Mm -hmm. Chunks of unrestricted money. And we need to raise them in short periods so that I can get back to work. So, um, so we raised money in rounds. In 2016, I raised what I called a growth round, a growth capital. It was like a Series B, and I set out to raise 20 million. We actually closed it at closer to 26 million, which may be the coolest words that ever come out of my mouth. Um, and then last year, um, I got which a is more than most founders can yeah, ever say. Yeah, and la la last, they end up with Teslas though. But last year, I last, which is cool. Um, last year, unless you live in New York and then it's whatever. Anyway, so, um, and then last year I got a little heady and I wanted to try and raise 50 million and I, I didn't, it was, that was hard, but we closed it around 32. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, and we did that, we do these again in short period and we, it's like me and we do them in short periods of time. Um, and so that I can get back to work and be in the office, um, and actually get stuff done and be on the platform. But most not-for-profits, they have whole development teams and the executive director or CEO is constantly out there raising money and filling out forms. And so you can't get anything done. And then you apply to some foundation for like $200,000 and they say, great, we're going to give you $100,000. What, what is that? 
Like, what do you want me to build for half of the money that I just told you it was going to cost? It makes no sense. So I've been saying no to some people. Like, you want to give me half? No, I'm not taking your money. I need the whole thing or like, go away. And which, which is like ungrateful on my bar. Totally. Um, but, um, like I, that's how I think this stuff ought to work. And so I've been kind of sticking to my guns. I hope more organizations raise money this way. I hope more philanthropists reward this behavior. And then we can avoid hosting those dinners and trotting people on stage with our noblesse oblige saying like, look at, here's the life I saved. No, 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 thank you. What you, you recently spun out a company as well. Uh, so this was like, this is like a moonshot. So we had a couple of companies come to us and be like, you've really learned a lot about the language of moving people from hot to cool. Can you help us do that? And I was like, no, but if you pay us. So, um, so we spun out a company called Loris.ai because as soon as we called it .ai, the valuation was higher. And, um, and I raised a, a venture round, a seed round, um, led by some amazing people out here. Floodgate led the round. And it's an enterprise company. Our first two partners are Intuit and Lyft. They're both paying us and giving us data to train an algorithm. It's basically going to create like Grammarly for emotion to help customer service reps pick exactly the right words so that instead of like just giving a refund or bribing somebody with, uh, with money to, and a coupon to come back or potentially losing a really great customer, instead just use the right language. Be kind. And there is a science you're behind empathy. kindness. You're, you're, you're helping them bridge empathy. We're helping them bridge empathy, oh. which, is, which is what all of this is. I mean, it's, it's about building a more empathetic world. Oh. Let's get another question. We only have time for four more audience questions. Mm-hmm. First, thank you so much for creating Crisis Text Line and for sharing the information you shared. Um, I'm just curious, do you have any data you can share about people with chronic health conditions that reach out to you? My, we, we do have um, quite a few chronic health um, uh, conditions that people reach out about. And I would say two things. One is to look at crisistrends.org um, to see what's there. And the other is if you or someone you know is an academic or researcher, that would be a fantastic thing to look at the crossover between chronic health conditions and, um, and mental health and crisis. So again, Jackie's right here. But that, that's almost a, f- a really fascinating one because yeah. we have this aspect of and challenge in the country of chronic and the, and the implications of mental health on chronic health conditions that we don't actually really we don't, I mean, we're willing to take care of the chronic condition, but not the mental health aspect of the, what the condition. What doesn't cross over with mental health? I, I, right? Like fair. weather.com data, someone should look at with mental health. Um, altitude, people have looked at and how that relates to depression. I mean, really, the possibilities are endless. The brain still hasn't been mapped, right? Like we've done so much work on so many other things. We really don't understand yet emotion, mental health, and a lot of behavioral health. It's a good thing President Obama created the brain initiative. Thanks, Obama. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many punchlines. Another question. Yeah. uh, Good evening. Um, It was an absolute education being here with both of you this evening. So thanks a lot to both of you. And thank you, Nancy, in particular, for the absolutely wonderful work you do. Um, I have a question about the, uh, what do you call it, the, the triage process that you alluded to earlier on. Um, you were talking about specific words, um, crying emojis, um, the word military, the word bridge being more predictive of crisis situations. Um, I was wondering how you uh, supplement the vast corpus of data that you have from text messages with 
um, data about like real life outcomes in order to inform insights like this. So one of the things that's really interesting, people ask us all the time about outcomes, and we we called the a few friends in the nine one one space and said. What do you do when you get asked those questions also? And how do you train against that? And they kind of laughed and they said, do you mean, do we call people a week later and be like, hey, your house burned down. How's it going? Um, and uh, we don't have, and, and this is one of those things where, again, a lot of foundations really get frustrated with us about this um, and say, like, how do you train against outcome data and what outcome data you have? We don't. That's not what we do. We are crisis response. We're in that moment where, um, right, like I've got supervisors here. Sam and Josie are both here. They call in the active rescues, that the crisis counselors. We are at that moment where you were in a bathroom and you are going to swallow a bottle of pills or not. And we're there for you. We are the only one who's there for you. Do we know what happens the next day? No. But you know what? That's on you. As the texture, like that's on you. We've, we've given you support. You know that we are here. And if you need, you can, you can text back in again and we will be there for you. Um, but we're also reminding you how strong you are. We've encouraged you to talk to your mom. Um, we've reminded you that actually dance is the thing that makes you feel strong. And so you should dance. And at a certain point, people have to take responsibility for their own mental health and behavioral health. So we don't text back out and reach out to them. And so we don't have that data to train against. Well, something that's phenomenal. I remember um, visiting a high school recently and just asking how many people had heard of text, uh, crisis text line or texted. And it was, it was a probably more than 80, 90% of the, the students had texted crisis text line. In fairness, that was a school in Palo Alto. It, well, it was in Palo Alto. <laughs> and I will say, since I'm here, there's definitely an acute issue going on in this community. You mentioned the Golden Gate Bridge earlier. The Golden Gate Bridge is the number one suicide location in the United States. It is the number two location in the world. Um, and every sign out there is, uh, is, is, if- and we now have, thanks to the battery, anyone here, a member of the battery, we were funded. Yep. Thanks to the battery and, and Doug Mandel helped push this through, but thanks to the battery and battery powered. Um, we had a director here, um, for a couple of years who really helped us blanket the Bay area. So we're on all the Caltrans and really importantly, we're on the golden gate bridge where we've done about 500 conversations from the bridge wow. and anybody texting us from the bridge is imminent risk. They have the ideation, they have the plan. They have the means and they have the timing. They're right there. And that's someone who's probably wouldn't have called because people would be around you hearing. And it you would, can't hear anything. Yeah. You're on a bridge. Right. Well, that's true, too. So, um, so yeah. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. Um, you may have answered this already. So my question was, besides the active rescues, like how do your crisis counselors decide when to give a resource referral? And I'm a mental health professional. So like 15% under 13, like just really put a pit in my stomach. Are you finding enough resources? And, you know, what is it that you, your counselors need the most? Thank you. Great question. Well, first of all, what we need is more crisis counselors. So, How, um, how does someone become a crisis counselor? Yeah, you apply online and what, you go through, it's at crisistextline.org, and you go through a background check. And so you have to be over the age of 18. And, um, and then it's about a 34-hour training that's challenging. Um, so um, look, the vast majority of our conversations do not end at an active rescue, right? That's, like I said, less than 1%. 23% of our conversations have a referral to, we, we give a referral to something like a breathing gif or um, a, a lookup tool to find the closest AA meeting. 
Um, so we have a lot of uh, referrals like that. But um, in addition to our crisis counselors, we do have supervisors. There's two of them here who are full-time staff who have a master's degree in a relevant field. And they're the ones who are supporting our crisis counselors. And they're the ones who actually make the call on whether or not to trigger an active rescue. And they're the ones who do it. So really, as a texter, you have the algorithm who looks at you, then a caring human being in the form of a crisis counselor and a supervisor who's watching everything in real time. So you actually have a team of people um, who are watching those conversations. Do we have time for one more? Or do we? Okay, we got last more. question. Make it a good one. No pressure. I have a seven-part question. That... <laughs> no. Um, I teach uh, storytelling uh, at both Columbia and at Stanford, and I have used your TED Talk as an example of effective storytelling, and tonight got a ton more from what you just naturally do. You've shared with us so many needs that the organization has. If you had to prioritize for this room in San Francisco, what's one, two, and three for those of us who want to help? And we've never met. That was not a shill question. No, it wasn't. <laughs> um, I would say one is we really do need more crisis counselors. Every marketplace, the supply side actually matters more than the demand side. So um, we need more crisis counselors. And we, if you don't like to sleep, we love you. Um, we really need like insomnia crisis counselors who like to be up in the middle of the night and juggle lots of... We need owls. We need a lot of night owls. So that, I would say, is the first thing. Um, I would say the second thing is we're hiring. I've got to say this. Um, while I'm out here, so like we're looking for engineering and data science guys. Um, um, ben would kill me, but we're looking for engineering and data science. Um, we're no different Ben. Um, so we're 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 hiring. That's the second thing. And, and I would you get say to work the, with me if you do that. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> and I would say the third thing, which also goes back to the to the prior question and the pain of hearing the, that data on under 13s is, I'm a mom, and I have an eighth grader and a sixth grader. Um, and so seeing that under 13 data really killed me too. And so I would just say my third thing would be to tell the people in your life, not just the young people, but let's, let's, you should know that it's actually middle-aged men who are most likely to complete a suicide attempt. And out here, there's a lot of pain, you know, and a lot of pressure in tech. Um, I would say my third request tonight would be to tell the people in your life that they're enough to just to tell them that they are enough and not to say like, I'm here for you if you need me, but to actively say to them, you're enough. I believe in you. I'm worried about you. Um, I have friends here tonight who have done that with me recently. Um, and, uh, and I'm really grateful for them. And that is what is needed. I hear that the last question, where's KT? I hear that the last question always is my, like 60, what is it? The 60 second? Yeah, I get Go to ahead. say it. I, it's, it is now an informed tradition to ask all our speakers the following question. What is your 60 second idea to change the world? So um, I think there are two massive, massive problems um, that, are covering our planet right now. So one is climate change, and I'm really hoping that somebody else has that covered because I'm not working on it. But <laughs> the second one is human connection. 
and just the lack of human connection. And that encompasses the racism that I was talking about before. That encompasses loneliness is something we didn't talk about tonight, but a lot of what we're encountering is just loneliness. And my plea to you to tell the people in your life that they're enough, that you value them, that you see them, um, that third request really would be, there, and there's, it, it's free. It doesn't cost anything except maybe your own courage. And that would be my biggest request to connect with other humans in your life and tell them they're enough. Nancy. Uh, Nancy, thank you for everything that you have created, everything that you've done to bring so many of the crisis counselors together uh, and how much you've done for just taking care of all of us. So please know that uh, it's very genuine, that uh, my heartfelt gratitude for everything you do. And thank you for being my friend. Uh, I'm DJ Patil, and I uh, want to thank Nancy for being here with us at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Good night. Thank you, Nancy. <laughs>